Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. A warning for listeners, this episode contains detailed descriptions of sexual assault. Everybody knows about the 215 unmarked graves at the Kamloops Indian Residential School. Some people know that the principal of that school for many years was Bishop O'Grady, also known as the Bulldozer Bishop, for the zeal with which he expanded Canada's residential school system. Bishop O'Grady personally signed death reports of six kids who died at Kamloops, five from disease, one from lack of care. Of course, there are only records for part of his tenure as principal, so, you know, who knows what happened during the rest of it or what happened off the books. Anyhow, that is what some people now know about Bishop O'Grady's run as the principal of the Kamloops Indian Residential School. Far less well-known is the fact that Bishop O'Grady also ran a string of day schools for Indigenous children in remote areas. The government paid him by the kid— So he was always opening new schools and staffing them with young volunteer recruits who he called the Frontier Apostles. One of those Frontier Apostles, a phys ed coach, was an 18-year-old from Ireland named John Furlong. And over 50 Indigenous people who knew him back then later alleged that John Furlong physically abused kids, beating them and racially taunting them and three women accused John Furlong of sexual abuse. John Furlong didn't want anybody to know about any of that. He denies it all completely. He says that none of it ever happened. 
And John Furlong, of course, became a very big deal after his time with Bishop O'Grady. He rose to become the president of the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. He was called to the Order of Canada, honorary degrees, seats on corporate boards. He had all of that. And so when he and journalist Gary Mason of the Globe and Mail wrote John Furlong's memoir together, Furlong omitted that part of his life completely. He wrote that he had moved to Canada in 1974, when in fact he first arrived in 1969. The years that he forgot to include are the same years that he taught at the Immaculata School in Burns Lake. But some people from Burns Lake can't forget. Here is Beverly Mary Abraham. She started with my legs and then putting his hand up and he put his hand where it wasn't supposed to go in my privates. What they did to us was wrong. They should have never abused us. And here is Kathy Woodgate. It was really like a nightmare. He would target the slowest people. And I was one of the slowest ones, so I got hit most of the time. The reason why we know about Beverly Abraham and Kathy Woodgate and their allegations against John Furlong, and the reason why we know about dozens of others who have allegations against John Furlong, is because of journalist Laura Robinson, who paid a high price for telling us their stories. I first spoke to Laura Robinson on the show about all of this in 2014, but it now seems like the time is right to hear that conversation again. After you hear this conversation first recorded in 2014, Laura Robinson is going to join me again to give you an update on everything that's happened since. But for now, I'll just tell you this. A lot of people have already forgotten about John Furlong's accusers. John Furlong hasn't been forgotten. He has been all over the press in recent months. You can read about him in the Globe and Mail, in post-media newspapers, CBC, Global, CTV. John Furlong is quoted regularly on his new high-profile gig, leading Vancouver's possible bid to host the 2030 Olympics. You will find no mention in those stories of everything that you're about to hear. It's like all of this never happened. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Tim Everett, Alana McNevin, Riel Broyette, Petra O'Toole, Lauren Isaacson, Sandra Curry, John O. B., and Mark. My name is Mark, and I'm a communications professional working in the nonprofit sector in the GTA. I support Canada Land because they provide a much-needed critical lens on Canada's media landscape. They support local journalism and amplify lived experience advocacy to provide perspectives not represented in traditional media. Jesse and the Canada Land team recognize the importance of a robust news industry that's inclusive of marginalized and stigmatized voices. I was out in Vancouver. I was speaking at UBC, and I went down to Robson Square because there was a First Nations cultural event going on that I wanted to be at. But as you know, you don't go anywhere without your notepad. 
So I went down and I started talking to the cultural performers and I said, well, you're going to be in the Olympics and no one was going to be in the Olympics. And they said, no way are we going to be at these Olympics. We've scheduled our own gigs. And I said, well, why not? And they said, well, if you look at the contract we would have to sign, we had to give our intellectual property rights to Vanock and the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, mm-hmm. and forget it. We're not going to do that. You know, they're our intellectual property rights, not theirs. We hear a lot about this, the Olympics being just sort of predatory when it comes to their copyright and their it's a very, It is very strict. Mm-hmm. It's a very strict contract. They said it's not worth it. Yeah. Right? And so I was getting all these interviews, and they were virtually all saying the same thing, whether they were drummers or dancers or visual artists. And then one guy said to me, and I don't know who it was because I, I he wouldn't give me his name. Right. He said, you know, you want a real story. John Furlong came from Ireland and taught at a residential school. And I said, I don't believe you. And he said, I'm telling you, it's true. And I said, where? And he said, Northern BC. Well, I I Googled. Nothing came up. What was the official story of Furlong's beginning? Well, it was interesting. It was hard to find the official story, Uh actually. Nothing was coming up that had anything to do at all with residential school. And frankly, I couldn't believe that they would hire someone who had taught at a residential school because they were also working with the four host First Nations. And so I didn't think that the kind of contractual arrangements that were with the four host First Nations were going to go very well if those people knew that they were working with someone who was a residential school teacher. So anyway, nothing came up, and I dropped that story completely, and I covered the Olympics. I've covered every Summer Olympics since Atlanta in 96. This was my first Winter Olympics to cover, and almost forgot about it. And then Mr. Furlong's book came out called Patriot Hearts, and I was reviewing it for Anishinaabek News, which is a First Nations newspaper I've worked for for many years in northern Ontario. And there were just things that didn't sit. Uh, For instance, uh, he said that he was recruited... He lived in Dublin. He was recruited to be the athletic director of a northern BC high school. This is 1974. Well, I was in high school in 1974. And first of all, we didn't have athletic directors in Canada. Mm-hmm. You know, we had gym teachers and we had department heads. And I knew that our gym teachers didn't, you didn't have to go to Europe or Ireland or the UK to find them. You know, our gym teacher could come from down the street. The idea of recruiting some foreign talent for a job like that. Didn't ring true. Yeah. But, and the main thing was... He said he was, well, if it's an athletic director, that would be like a department head. Well, I knew to be a department head in a Canadian high school, you had an honors degree, so that's four years, and then you went to teacher's college in five years, or maybe you did those two together. It was a minimum of four years, and then you taught for 10 or 15 years, and then you could be considered for a department head. And he was only 23, Right. When he came and he had a wife and two kids and he had coached the women's basketball team in Ireland and he had played on the Irish basketball team and he played GAA football for Dublin and he had played international handball. And I couldn't imagine how you could possibly do all that stuff and only be 23 and be a department head. And he didn't name the school. Mm-hmm. But that was easy to find because there was only one Catholic high school in – he did say it was Prince George. So – and it was uh, Prince George College and then up came Bishop O'Grady and Bishop O'Grady was quite the businessman, I must say, found lots on him. And then up came the Frontier Apostle Missionaries because Bishop O'Grady started this you know, Catholic Peace Corps, as he called it. Uh-huh. And he staffed his schools 100 percent with missionaries. 
unpaid, you know, 25 bucks a month kind of thing, uh, room and board. And that set me off on a search because up came the Frontier Apostle Facebook site for the alumni. Like he had shut down the mission by 92, but the Frontier Apostle still kept in touch and had reunions. And so the right. Facebook site was up and someone had put on hundreds of pictures from the yearbooks, including Coach John A. Furlong. Uh-huh. And there he was, you know, with the basketball team, the volleyball team, the cross country running, track and field. That was it was him. So, so then I asked his uh, publisher Douglas and McIntyre. I said, "Was it Prince George College that Mr. Furlong taught at? And did he come as a frontier apostle missionary?" And no answer, no answer. You know, I keep asking, and eventually, yes, it was Prince George College. And then Mr. Furlong has nothing more to say to you. I tried to ask him in person when I was out west at a luncheon that he was speaking at, and he screamed at me and walked away. So then that, for a journalist, of course, that's a slight red flag. Lots of red flags here. Lots of red flags What did he here. scream at you? Uh, he, he yelled, stop it, stop it, and walked away. Mm-hmm. So I did a story for Play the Game in Denmark. Play the Game is this great organization that's all about transparency, anti-corruption, pro-democracy, freedom of expression, and sport. So I did a story called Sins of Omission, and and I interviewed the high school basketball players. I could see their names in the uh, yearbook pictures, and they said he was a good coach. They won a lot of games. But then they said, we realized later that he just used us to move up the food chain. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was soon out of Prince George left his wife and kids there and moved down to Nanaimo to be the Parks and Rec director there and then moved from there to the Arbutus Club, which is a health club in Vancouver, and went and managed the health club and then moved on to be the COO of the bid committee for the Olympics and then the CEO of the Olympic Organizing Committee. Um, There were no allegations of abuse at that time at all. That story was on the net for a year that he came to Canada as a as a missionary. It's not really an expose. It's just it's just a different story than the one he'd been telling. I exactly. Guess. Yeah. Yeah. He he had never talked about being a missionary, and in fact, he kind of skips a lot uh, when I look back at you know. There's a lot of YouTube's of him, and that story's out there for a year, and then in comes an email from another First Nations person saying to me, "I got so sick of the accolades for furlong." I I Googled his name plus residential school, and your story came up. Uh-huh. Well, you only talk to the high school basketball players. You need to talk to those people in Burns Lake. And Prince George and Burns Lake are a few hundred kilometers apart. And Burns Lake is a much more isolated place because he taught at the elementary school there. And then he gave me two examples that included violence. Uh-huh. And that set me on a search. You know, I called up to the Burns Lake Band office and uh, within a minute and a half, someone had emailed me and said, I had Mr. Furlong, so did my siblings. What are you writing about? And I contacted the Indian Residential School Survivor Society. Those people put me on to a whole bunch of people. Like They have quite a few offices in northern BC. So you know, from Ontario, I was able to do a number of telephone interviews. One of the examples that this original person who emailed me gave me, she told me what happened, but she said, I've worked so many years in counseling to get rid of these memories. Yeah, I can't 
not going to be part of this story. And I protect and I completely yeah. uh, respected that. You know, I've done so many years of research on sexual abuse in hockey and in the military. So when someone tells you I, I can't do this publicly, you respect that. Yeah. And I didn't need her story by then. I had a huge amount of people in Burns Lake, and I was I had booked my flight to Burns Lake by then. And were uh, you operating completely independently? Were you were you working for any publication at this point? No, I wasn't working for any publication, and I knew that this kind of a story, you know, uh, John Furlong kind of walked on water out there in Vancouver, the Globe, and you know, a lot of newspapers were official Olympics media sponsors. Mm-hmm. Like for me. You either are a news media or you're a sponsor, but you're not both. And the TV station, same thing, right? CTV had the broadcast rights, obviously, for those Olympics. Yeah, so a brand like the Olympics, it's just sort of like it, everybody's involved in some way. Everybody's involved. Yeah. And, and so I didn't even pitch it to any of those uh, newspapers yeah. because they had basically, as far as I could see, just kind of reproduced a lot of press releases without doing due diligence. Yeah. And so I was doing due diligence. Had you done much investigative work at this point? Oh, yeah, tons. I mean, I, my book on hockey, Crossing the Line, Violence and Sexual Assault in Canada's National Sport, came out in 98. I spent six years in hockey arenas across Canada researching this phenomena of the rape culture in junior hockey. You know, I talked to – I've got all kinds of hockey players and, and girls who yeah. ended up at parties and 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 – retired hockey players who are finally telling their stories about what really happened to them. And just to contextualize you, I mean, you're an interesting person for people to wrap their heads around as somebody who I think is it fair to call you an uh, an independent journalist who sort of spent the part of your career that was in in journalism, not in sport, investigating sports and and the problems with sports and, and problems with gender and abuse in sports for books, for various publications, but operating more or less independently. Is that a fair characterization? Well, you know, I came from sport, right? I mean, I knew in grade eight uh, that I was going to be a bike racer. Yeah. You know, I knew when I got on my bike, uh, when I got on a real 10 speed and um, threw my leg over that saddle, that I had found what I was supposed to do for the rest of my life, which was ride a bike. And, you know, I raced at, at the international level, but I could see huge problems in cycling. Uh, mm-hmm. I could see that there were a huge amount of young women who were being compromised by their coach, yeah. by their sponsor. And at first I thought I was in the wrong sport. But in 1993, I worked with the Fifth Estate, and we did a, a documentary on coaches and the sexual abuse of female athletes. And we attended the 1993 Canada Summer Games. And I would just go up to groups of girls and ask, you know, have you ever had a coach who crossed the line? And there wasn't a single group of girls, it didn't matter what sport I went to, who didn't a look across their face. And they either said, well, not me, but my sister, yeah. my best friend. And we had, for that documentary, we could have done a series. Yeah. yeah. We had so many female athletes who had been sexually abused by male coaches. And I was the first journalist in Canada to write about that. I wrote about it in the Globe fall of 92 or 93, and they, they called that story uh, sexual abuse, sports, dirty little secret. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I came from sport, but it's I'm not naive. I know that when you have young people who have invested emotionally into something that is their passion, then they are very vulnerable young people because they will do almost anything to continue in that passion. Yeah. And and unfortunately, there's a certain percentage of people who prey upon young, vulnerable people. It doesn't matter if it's a choir or a church 
or a scout pack or a sports team. Yeah. They're vulnerable children. There's that disparity of power and then there's that uh, absolutely consuming hunger to to do this and be this, and, this. And, and to perform and to do what's being asked of you. It's It's so – Ripe for abuse. It's so ripe, yeah. And that person is the gatekeeper. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I found that in hockey, you know, the, the whole Sheldon Kennedy story and, and Swift Current Broncos. And, you know, I knew about Theo Fleury years before his book came out. But I didn't say anything because you have to wait until that person's ready. And most people are never ready. Most people never tell us what really yeah. happened to them. All right. Well, that's a, a bit of a digression that will give people yeah. an idea of yeah. who you are. Um, but let's get back to Furlong. And, and to summarize, you know, uh, I mean, investigations take a long time and you, and you, you accumulate new bits and, and new, new testimonials. What ultimately were the allegations against Furlong that you were able to report? Well, I got up to the Burns Lake Band office. There were 36 people waiting for me. The notice went out like in a day and a, there was a day and a half. And half of them, though, were there to hold the hands of the people who had something to tell me. So we went into a private, I went one person with, if they needed someone with them, they were with them. And I took those stories. They signed them, they dated them, they initialed every page. I went right back down to Vancouver. I went right to Charlie Smith, the editor-in-chief at the Georgia Strait. And Charlie said, Laura, it's John Furlong. I need affidavits. Yeah. So I just went right back up to Burns Lake, and those people were very happy to give me affidavits. Uh-huh. We were lucky that there was a lawyer in Burns Lake, a very a good person. And so they were going on the record with their names? Oh, absolutely on the record with their names. Huh. Yeah. Had you only been able to get anonymous sources, was the story a non-starter? Oh, it would have been a non-starter. There's no way you could ever write about uh, someone like John Furlong with anonymous uh, names. No, I wouldn't have done it. Uh-huh. And even with four people, I wouldn't have done it. But I probably had... 20 people. 20 people on the record. On the record. Claiming eight, what? Yeah, eight affidavits. And then all, all the other ones were signed statements who they said, if you want to me to do an affidavit, I'll do an affidavit, right? But the Georgia Street was fine with eight affidavits plus the rest on the record uh, dated statements. Um, Such a soft science of like, well, where are you? Okay, well, that's where's the standard? Is it three? Is it six? Is it eight? And, you know, like. Well, you know, I mean, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. The, the lawyer in Burns Lake, Warren Chapman, said, "You know, these people have arrived early, Laura, to sign these things." So, what know? were they saying? What were they, they were saying? saying they were talking about physical and racial and psychological abuse. Uh-huh. Very serious. I mean, this is an elementary school. These are people who are between the ages of six and sixteen, because some people were failed in kindergarten three and four times in yeah. a row. And you have to understand that the Catholic Church got for every First Nations kid. They got money from the federal government. Uh-huh. So the longer they could keep them, the more money they got. Yeah. That's why you could find a 16-year-old in grade 7. It uh-huh. wasn't because they were stupid. Uh-huh. They were alleging very serious physical abuse, actually, and racial taunting, like, you know, you're, you're a bunch of stupid Indians, you're good for nothing, dirty, you know, that kind of stuff. A lot of people would say, I'll thump ya, you know, that he would say, I'll thump ya, I'll thump ya. And then one person, Beverly Abraham, alleged sexual abuse. And I sat there with her in the restaurant, doesn't touch alcohol at all. You know, she's on a healing journey. She fell apart talking to me about the physical and sexual and psychological abuse. It was in her affidavit. It was in my original draft. The Georgia Strait went with the Torstar decision of 2009 in terms of what we were going to put in the story and what we weren't going to put in. Talking about Grant versus Torstar? Yes. So we didn't put in the sexual abuse because we only had one allegation of it. 
So I think we erred very conservatively in the way we did this story. And yeah. I'm glad we did. I'm not that, I mean, I believe everything Beverly Abraham yeah. put in her affidavit. More people came forward about sexual abuse after that, not just the two others who sued him for child sexual abuse, but other people who chose not to sue him also gave me statements. So it's not that I didn't believe her. Right. And speaking of the Toronto Star, they were originally going to publish this story as well. They were going to originally publish it. And then I was covering the London Olympics, and but I went to London via Ireland because I knew that I would find more information in Ireland. You're uh, flying around. Who's paying for this? Well, first of all, I went out west on points. There, you know, I mean, and, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to pitch this kind of story unless you have a huge amount of evidence already. So you just have to do the groundwork and say, you know, this is an investment in it's an investment in your career, but you know what? It's really an investment in truth and justice. And that's how I looked at it. Yeah. And I've covered First Nations issues for 24 years. The Toronto Star. Why Why did the Toronto Star not You're going to have to ask the Toronto Star exactly why they killed the story. Who made that decision? That was made above Colin McKenzie. He was the national news editor at the time. Colin felt terrible about it. He's no longer there. And uh, that's definitely an important issue for me. Had, had lawsuits been threatened when they made that oh, decision? I, the lawsuit was threatened way back in March or April 2012. What happened is I, of course, had to get John Furlong's side of this story. Sure. I had these two original allegations from a First Nations person from northern BC. I sent them to his publisher because he'd never given me his email. And I said, you know, very unfortunately, this has come to my email and I need for Mr. Furlong to comment. And probably 48 hours later, a letter from his lawyer came and said, you know, one word, he doesn't know what you're talking about. This was 40 years ago. And don't forget one libelous word, you're sued. Right. So there was the threat. Yeah. So and I sent all of those letters to the star. They knew. They knew. Right. So we can't ascribe anything to their motives, but we can uh, describe a series of events. Yeah. Uh, Lawsuits were threatened. The star was going to publish. They didn't publish. They didn't publish. Okay. The Georgia Strait did. Yeah. What happened next? Well, all hell broke loose. <laughs> it really broke loose. And, you know, they, they purposely held back. They didn't put anything about it on the front cover. I mean, normally that would be a cover story. Mm-hmm. No, it's inside. You know, they really were very careful not to sensationalize this. Yeah. And uh, they published late, too. They did all they could to make this a normal way that we're not going to sensationalize this story. But I guess they published around 10 o'clock Pacific time, and by 101, my time, the phone is ringing. Yeah. Yeah. And it continued to, and uh, I guess, you know, Mr. Furlong uh, held a press conference that afternoon. He said incredibly libelous stuff about me. And um, what did he say? He said that I was, um, you know, that they had sort of thought they were rid of me after the Olympics. You know, we had to endure this, I'm paraphrasing him, we had to endure this journalist. Uh, during the Olympics, but we thought we were rid of her once the games were over, but obviously not. And, you know, she uh, she has this uh, vendetta mm-hmm. agenda. So he talked about me, and then he started the next sentence with and, and it wasn't a new paragraph, like when he gave out the statements. I was approached about this before the Olympics, and I was told for a certain amount of money, this story could go away. And it definitely looked as if I had been the person who had approached him before the Olympics, as if I was extorting him. I mean, it was unbelievable when I read that. Do you think that was his intention? Well, I can't imagine that you have 
these ideas in the same paragraph, and then he's talking about me, and the next sentence is starts with an and. Right. That we're not talking about the same thing. So it seems like he was inferring that not only were you on some vendetta against him, like you're a pest, you're Mm -hmm. on a vendetta, but there's also the suggestion. I set the thing up to extort him before the Olympics. Extortion, blackmail, that sort of. Yeah, two years, two years, three years, you know, practically before I even knew of the story. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then came the lawsuit? Uh, Yeah, what happened is, um, of course, the story breaks and way more people come forward about him. Yeah. Including um, an ex- common law wife, including a lot of non-Native people who witnessed stuff. And meanwhile, I'm back up in northern BC interviewing people. Way more people up there are nodding to me and saying, I need to tell you something about Mr. Furlong. And, And then what I saw up in northern BC was this terrible trauma in people, right? Because here they were little children when these allegations occurred. They used to run away from the school. He wasn't the only alleged abuser. Mm-hmm. And the police would bring them back. And then they would be punished for lying. Yeah. So 40 years later, they get the courage to tell their stories again. And instead of feeling believed, I mean, they know I believe them in the Georgia Strait. And I think the majority of people in Canada know that it's really hard to come forward about child yeah. abuse. Um, you spend your life trying to get over it. You or, spend your life trying to get over it. Yeah. And that you don't want to make enemies of powerful people. So they get the courage to say it. And Christy Clark, the premier of BC, gets on television that night and says, oh, Mr. Furlong's a good friend of mine, you know. And then um, yeah. and, and then on the podium, which we all support with our tax money, says, uh, you know, Mr. Furlong's a man of great integrity, of ethics. Uh, we support him 100% in these difficult days. Uh-huh. So what I did after I saw the trauma up north and saw how difficult it was for people not to be believed again. Yeah. I talked to some experts who deal with trauma, childhood trauma that revisits an adult. Suicide's more likely. Violence is more likely. There's all kinds of things that trigger very difficult things in their lives. So I wanted to do a story about the re-traumatization of the students. So I, I wrote to Own the Podium and I said, how did you decide that Mr. Furlong's a man of great integrity and ethics? Did you go to Burns Lake? Did you call the people in Burns Lake and interview them yeah. and get their side of the story? I mean, why would Own the Podium just use what I've written? They, you know, if they're going to make a decision, they need to ask the people who I reported on. They're not interested in talking to me, right? Yeah, right. Uh, so I, I, I sent that email, and then his common-law wife alleged very serious violence, and so did the girls from hostel number two. Like he was in Burns Lake. He got married to a woman named Margaret Cook, who became Margaret Furlong. They moved to Prince George and they were the resident supervisors of hostel number two. She was. And the women who were girls in hostel number two started to talk to me about very serious domestic violence. And so I, again, wanted, it was getting towards December 6th. And I wanted to do a story on these allegations. And so I asked on the podium to forward these questions to him. And then the lawsuit came within two days. Now, when you sue somebody for libel, you have to be very specific about what they said that was libelous. Mm-hmm. So what does he claim was the libelous statement? Well, he actually said not only the whole story in the Georgia Street, but my two emails. He sued me to those two queries that I sent to own the podium. Yeah. He sued me for those two. This is an interesting thing that that I experienced too, at least in a threat. It's not simply the journalism that gets published, but the idea of practicing the journalism, asking questions that you are committing some crime of libel or slander 
In asking questions. In asking questions. And, and people, I think all journalists, all human beings who use email and anything on the net need to know that any words you put on an email or an internet are potentially actionable. Yeah. And, and I knew that. I mean, I asked the questions as concisely and as compassionately as I could. I, I you know I said to own the podium, you know, I, I trust you understand the serious nature of this. And you're asking questions, not making assertions. I imagine, exactly. Right? Uh, yeah. Originally, you were sued as was the Georgia Strait. And that is typically how it goes when there's a libel claim against a journalist is that the publication or broadcaster is sued as well. But the suit against the Georgia Strait was dropped. Yeah, it was in- interesting how he dropped that. They, of course, are covered with a, a liability insurance. But it also came at the time uh, he received a letter from the RCMP. They were investigating the uh, sexual abuse allegation made by Bev Abraham. And th- he received a letter saying that he said exonerated. They said that they couldn't find enough evidence and it was historical. It's very difficult, of course, to to show evidence in historical sexual abuse. So they said, we don't have enough evidence, of course, uh, to go. We're not recommending that to Crown that charges be laid. And he used that letter to say, well, now I don't, I'm going to withdraw the suit against the straight and accelerate my case against Ms. Robinson. But in fact, I didn't put anything about sexual abuse in the article in the first place. Everyone else did, by the way. That night, the night that my article came out, the CBC did a big documentary on the national news yeah. and did include sexual abuse. And everyone ran up to Burns Lake, everyone else, CTV, Global, you know, every single print media. They all ran, including the star, with sexual abuse allegations. In fact, I was the only journalist who didn't run with sex abuse So once you cracked this open with the Georgia Strait, the star was okay with publishing it then? Yeah. yeah. And so that was his cover for dropping it against the Strait. Why do you think he only came after you, not after the CBC, not after the Toronto Star, not after the Georgia Strait? Well, I, I'm not going to comment on that. Yeah. Uh, obviously, I'm a, I'm a lone freelancer, and I, you know, I've, I'm doing fundraisers constantly to raise enough money to defend responsible right. journalism and, and truth-telling. So he's not, I'll say this, he's, he's not suing any of these major news brands or, or alternative news brands, but in any of these companies, he is suing you and he has previously attacked you and your credibility and your motives. So one might suggest that it is a consistent strategy that, you know, to discredit you and then a lawsuit against you and not others, you know, maybe there's some hope of, of public salvation by if that is successful. And, and that's my speculation about his motives. And then you sued him. Yeah, because what happened is, uh, you know, Play the Game, this wonderful, wonderful Danish organization, has a conference every couple of years. And what I thought was really interesting is why all these organizations, Own the Podium, Canadian Tire, Whistler Blackcomb, Rocky Mountaineer, and the Vancouver Whitecaps, why they decided not to talk to anyone in Burns Lake and Prince George, because by then there were a number of people in Prince George from Prince George College who had also made allegations and said, you know, until we get this resolved, we're asking you to step aside from our boards, right? They all supported him and kept him on the board. Right. So I thought, how is it that you can have dozens now of First Nations people making allegations of physical and psychological and racial abuse but we're not going to talk to those First Nations people. We're not. We're going to pretend they don't exist, really. Yeah. And we're just going to keep going with the story that we've been told. So I looked at how we are in historically in terms of addressing allegations of racism, very serious allegations of racism in sport. 
So I went off to Denmark, and the day before my talk, I was about to give the organizers my paper so they could lawyer it at the, you know, the very final draft. And they said to me, we've received a letter from Mr. Furlong's lawyer, and he's threatening that if we let you talk, uh, he's threatening to sue us. And so they very nicely, in their Danish way, said, well, we said to them, you know, uh, censorship was outlawed in Denmark 150 years ago, and we're not bringing it back. So, of course, uh, my talk was packed with people. Uh-huh. Yeah, and you can you can read that uh, you can read that paper on on the Play the Game website. We'll link to it. But t- tell me about your lawsuit against. So after he he went on a an absolute national barrage during that time period that I was in Denmark, saying incredible things, saying that I went into the RCMP office in Burns Lake and laid the sex abuse allegations against him. I mean, I was with my book club (laughs) in Ontario when those allegations were made. I was nowhere near Burns Lake. And and the only time I called the RCMP up there was after Bev Abraham said to me, I went to the police yesterday. Yeah. Of course, I had to ask the police if indeed she had gone. There's no way I'm going to move forward with the story going on the complainant's word. Mm-hmm. Of course, I had to get confirmation from the RCMP. Either they And they wouldn't confirm or deny. So eventually, they ended up calling me when I was covering the London Olympics. And by then, they were investigating. So of course, I had nothing to do with the allegations made. Beverly right. Abraham was perfectly capable of deciding whether or not she was going to make these allegations to the RCMP. She told me right from the start she wanted to, but she needed to gain the strength. Right. So that's what you're suing him for, essentially, a libelous uh, – what you things. say is a libelous claim that, 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 that you had actually well, – And not just that. Acted with malice against yeah, him. Yeah, acted with – yeah, like he was – you know, he was – He's been on a campaign to discredit you in your countersuing, basically. Yes, right. yes, I think that's okay. accurate. Um, what I said was that the Georgia Strait did not stand by you. Yeah, and that's incorrect. The Georgia Strait has been enormously supportive of me, and particularly my my editor, Charlie Smith. So I owe him an ap- apology and, and the Georgia Strait, which I think so. I'll issue right now. Uh, sorry. You were aware when you wrote for them? I did know. Charlie came to me sort of halfway through and said, I hate to tell you this, Laura, but I looked at our liability insurance and we don't cover freelancers. And I had already talked to my husband about this. I said, you know what, like this is really going to cost and what are we going to do? And he said, do the story. Mm-hmm. I'll support you. I jumped to the conclusion, seeing that you were being sued, the Georgia Strait wasn't, and that you were footing your own legal bills. Well, that flies in the face of what I believe a publication exists for when it commissions work from a journalist, whatever their insurance says. I, I think that there's an implicit contract that they are standing by that work and will support it. It does change matters that you knew that you would not be supported. Yeah. So, so I do apologize for that. And there's a separate conversation as to whether or not that's something that we need to really think about as more and more work, especially as investigative work goes onto a freelance basis. Yeah. And it's a total fluke that I happen to be married to such an incredible person who has the uh, financial means to... Now, there go his savings, right? Like, I mean, you think about what that has done to our life. It's massive. Massive. So how much has this cost you so far, Ballpark? This has cost us, when you include all the travel, all the times up to Burns Lake and Prince George and Ireland, you know, I got a lot of important documents in Ireland. Oh, it's well over 250000 now. Well over. What were you paid for the article? 2500 What's happened to your freelance career since? It dried up. 
almost completely. There's a few, you know, there are people who have stood by me. They've they've been brave, my editors, and uh, I really appreciate that. I've been asked, you know, like to speak now and then. I have to be very careful about what I say because everything you say is uh, actionable, of course. I mean, I'm not saying anything here that I haven't said before. Yeah. I, I stand by the students. I think they're enormously brave. Of course, I stand by the story, and I'm very proud of the story. What's happened to Furlong since this all broke? Well, I'm, I, I'm not going to comment on that. Uh, he, you know, I mean, you can just look on the net. He's not speaking the way he used to, right? He used to have all kinds of motivational speaking engagements. Well, what can you tell me about the facts of his life and if they've changed at all? Is he still on those boards? Does he still have he's the same? He's still p- on the boards he was on before the story. And he's on like an advisory board in a mining company now too. Who does he work for now? Well, like he's the executive chair of the of the Vancouver Whitecaps uh, soccer team. As I understand it, that's a paid position, right? That's that's more than a board position, right? And he is the chair of Rocky Mountain Rail Tours. And how many people on the record at this point have accused him of uh, physical or sexual abuse? Or uh... sexual abuse uh, is not nearly as many people as. Uh, I'm not going to comment on the sexual abuse because I didn't put it in my article in the first place. But people certainly have given me statements about it and more than just the three who are suing him. But in terms of physical and psychological abuse, whether it was to them or they witnessed it, way over 45 now. You know, that's more than two hockey teams. And I have to ask Canadians, if two white hockey teams said that a coach had physically and psychologically abused them, I think we might believe them. And I think what Canadians need to ask themselves is why, when First Nations people allege psychological and physical abuse, very serious stuff too, and and a lot of racial abuse, why aren't they believed? This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. 
Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. Laura, listeners just heard you and I speak seven years ago, uh, the first of, I think, several conversations about the Furlong case. It was a conversation in 2014, and what they heard was from a time when John Furlong was suing you for libel for your reporting about the many allegations against him. You, in turn, were countersuing him for libel because in response to your reporting on him, uh, he suggested that you had tried to extort him. And at the time of that conversation you and I had, the RCMP was still investigating John Furlong for Beverly Mary Abraham's allegations of sexual abuse. A lot has happened in this case since then, and I want to offer our listeners a quick update to each of those points. What happened to John Furlong's libel suit against you? Well, he, uh, John Furlong um, just ended his libel suit against me and the Georgia Strait once the... Uh, civil suit that uh, three people, three uh, First Nations people had alleged that he sexually assaulted them at Immaculata Day School. And when that suit was dismissed, he said that he had been exonerated by the RCMP and that there was no need to uh, further his suit against me. Although the big problem for John Furlong was that I didn't allege in my article that he sexually assaulted anyone. So he spent a lot of time trying to tell Canada that I had written that when I hadn't. But anyway, by that time, he had said so many libelous things about me. I had sued him and that suit went ahead. So his initial position that everything you wrote was a lie and he was going to see you in court and prove that it was a lie, he dropped that suit. Yes, he did. And and yet... Because in his press conference, uh, initially, he said, you know, this reporter has been lying about me. And I was approached uh, and and told that the story could go away for money. And a lot of people, uh, as you explained in our interview, a lot of people, I think, very reasonably would, would think, okay, he's saying that this reporter tried to extort him. In fact, he was referring to somebody else entirely, uh, somebody who also says that they never asked him for money. And you took him to court for a, a few things that he said, but, but that was one of them. And you did not drop that suit. You saw that suit through. Can you update us on what happened there? Well, the judge said that she sided with Furlong. She said that he was allowed to use qualified privilege. So even if what he said about me wasn't necessarily true, that my words had attacked him and he had the right to attack me back. <laughs> so one important aspect of that is that all of them decided that quoting First Nations people was actually me, which was part of the way in which this entire process dehumanized and objectified Indigenous people. I think that from a point of view of just looking at press freedoms in Canada, this was a remarkable decision from the court uh, for that reason, because uh, it, it basically said there's no distinction between you reporting on multiple allegations, like individual human beings signed affidavits and swore that this happened. And the court said, well, it's Laura Robinson. You know, it's, it's essentially there's no distinction between those people and Laura Robinson. And meanwhile, those affidavits themselves were not allowed into evidence. So, uh, you know, I think that there is a reasonable conclusion of like, we will not hear from his accusers. We will limit this to a conflict between a reporter and the subject of the story. They didn't just limit it because they did allow the affidavit from Father Gregoire Bedette. So they allowed an affidavit from a white priest 
And yet Justice Wedge didn't allow the affidavit from the Indigenous people. And they allowed an unsigned press release from the Furlong family. And yet they didn't allow any of the signed and dated statements from other Indigenous people who were on the record with their allegations of abuse. But, you know, we didn't get an affidavit, but we got a signed dated statement from them. They didn't allow those. So there was a very, um, to me, a very racist way in which that judge decided whose voice she was going to hear. The Indigenous voices did not get inclusion or they didn't exist in, in, yes. in, in terms of consideration for that ruling and the other voices from the church and from Furlong supporters did. Thank you. That is an important point. From a press freedom point, the idea that when somebody is defending themselves against accusations in the press and they attack the journalist, which is like always the strategy, that that actually, because you're defending yourself, you kind of have a license to lie. Uh, I don't know about kind of. Uh, Qualified privilege means that, that the standard of accuracy that a journalist would get held to if you were taken to court for libel, is not the same standard of accuracy that Furlong was held to in defending himself and attacking you. Because he was defending himself, he could attack you, and he didn't have to be telling the truth. That is, uh, I don't think that's even a question of interpretation. That, that is what the judge ruled. That's remarkable, and, and I think something that should concern journalists. The final piece that I want to update people on is the RCMP investigation itself. What can you tell us about where that landed? Well, I didn't receive the RCMP files until after my trial. And when I did, I was utterly shocked because they did not investigate. They were supposed to get three production orders, one for the affidavits, one for the diocese files, and one for my notebooks. So as you can imagine, I interviewed 22 people who alleged abuse before I did the article. As soon as it came out, many, many more people alleged very serious abuse. They contacted me or they contacted the Georgia Strait. And these are people, by the way, often who don't have a telephone and don't have a computer, and yet they still managed to contact us somehow and wanted to give statements. So my notebooks contain very serious allegations of abuse that no one has read including the RCMP, because they didn't get the production order for them. You might feel that the RCMP didn't investigate properly. And in looking at some of the documents that have come out where we see the RCMP essentially back-channeling, arguably colluding with John Furlong, uh, apologizing for how long the investigation is taking. I know that you wanted to see this wrapped up. We know that the RCMP contacted your editor before your story came out, pretty much advocating for John Furlong. You've documented links between members of the RCMP and John Furlong in previous roles that they had. There's plenty of reason for you or I to think like the RCMP was, was pretty much in the tank here. But apart from our take on this, what we can say for a fact is that there is a human rights complaint on behalf of some of John Furlong's accusers alleging that the RCMP failed at their duty to properly investigate these claims and that there was no small amount of racism involved in their failure to do so. And what is the status of that human rights complaint right now? It's six members of the Lake Babine First Nation filed a complaint uh, at the Canadian Human Rights Commission against the RCMP in January 2017. The uh, Human Rights Commission in June 2018, after the RCMP spent more than a year trying to persuade them not to investigate, said that the RCMP's arguments were speculative and misleading and conducted a year-long investigation, which I think is when I read the report, and it's it's a protected report, I can't share it with anyone, but when I read that report, I saw what a good job 
what real investigation uh, from a federal body can look like. So they uh, told the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, so the commission does education and investigation, the tribunal holds the inquiries. They're two Mm -hmm. independent organizations. They told the tribunal that an, an inquiry needed to be held into the allegations of racism and bias against the RCMP by First Nations people. And the complainants have said, not only do we need to be compensated for this lack of service uh, that wasn't provided by the RCMP, but every single survivor of all the day and residential schools in the diocese, there were 26 of them, they need to be compensated and all 26 schools need to be thoroughly investigated. And when do we expect a final outcome of that process? Well, a final outcome, I'm not sure, but the date that the uh, tribunal has tentatively said, yes, we're starting now, is January 11th of 2022. So it's coming up very quickly. And the complainants have mm-hmm. said have said it needs to be in Smithers. Of course, many people don't have a vehicle. It's uh, northern Canada in the winter. Uh, we're arranging for uh, transportation for them to Smithers. That's the closest town that has an airport and has the kind of facilities necessary for a tribunal, like a large conference room. So human rights tribunals are open to the public. I hope everyone up in northern BC attends this one. And they've scheduled three weeks and then a three-week break and then another three weeks. So a total of six weeks of hearings. You know, And then the chair of the tribunal, David Thomas, is hearing the case then there needs to be time for his decision. And then in the remedies section of the statement of particulars, a complete reinvestigation of John Furlong, but not conducted by the RCMP. And as I said, a very thorough investigation of all 26 day and residential schools. And this was written a year before the graves in Kamloops were discovered. Mm -hmm. And so now, of course, that investigation takes on a much greater purpose. It goes beyond investigating abuse. You know, it does go to who disappeared here. Death. Yes. This tribunal is going to play out in a very different context than this ordeal thus far. And all of the systems, be it the court, the media, the Globe and Mail, Furlong's friend, Gary Mason, writing that he has a right to get on with his life, the National Post interviewing Furlong about his ordeal but not interviewing his accusers, all of those things that were acceptable might be different now. It seems like perhaps Canadians are actually curious to know exactly what happened to these schools. Bishop O'Grady specifically, the Prime Minister of Canada, has said he's open to a criminal investigation of the residential school system. I know that uh, Immaculata was not technically a residential school, but but it does seem like something has changed in terms of, uh, I guess, just the massive force to look the other way, just this, this uh, kind of national narrative of refusing to hear these voices, refusing to dig into this and really punishing those who did. Maybe that's different. Do you think it'll be different? I think it's going to be very different. And the graves, it's such a, a terrible tragedy, but it is part of the real Canadian history and really, really, really tired of uh, the revisionist history that was passed around, you know, especially, I have to say, from the uh, little sports community that has supported Furlong all these years, pretending. I have always asked people in the sports community, 
why don't you at least talk to the people of Northern BC and listen to their stories before you decide that they're liars? And everyone in sport pretty much has decided that John Furlong was telling the truth. And now we have 65 people who have alleged that he either abused them, they witnessed him abusing others, or they reported his abuse. That gives you a real indication of the true racism within Canadian sport. Laura, thank you, as always, for keeping me up to date on this. You're very welcome. Okay, that is your Canada Land. If you like the show, what I'm going to ask you to do, if you like the show, actually, is um, tell somebody about it. There are a lot of people who might like the show who don't know about it, and uh, they care about what you think. Spread the word. You can email me. I'm at jesse at canadaland.com, and I read everything that you send. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is CanadaLand.com, where you can sign up for our free newsletter, which keeps you informed once a week only. You get an email that tells you everything that we've reported and about what's on all of our podcasts. It's a great newsletter with fun stuff in there as well. This episode was originally produced by me with help from Christopher DeMello. Today's update produced by Tristan Capicione. Our theme music is by SoCalled. Syndication is handled by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like this show, tell someone. Thank you.